0: Apostle writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. Or, is, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. There are four big ideas that we will work through this morning four big ideas that sort of will comprise the roadmap of what we're going to talk about today and those four big ideas i'll give them all all to you at once i believe they're in your bulletin this first big idea is the apostle exhorting us to put all forms of sexual sin to to put off all forms of sexual sin and instead put on a heart of thanksgiving and that is past that is verses three through four And then what we're going to do is we're just going to very temporarily step away from our immediate text and look at the larger picture of how Paul has got to where he is in his letter and his flow of thought through the letter, as well as the rest of Scripture's picture of sexual sin. And we're going to conclude that man or woman, young or old, every one of us is vulnerable to sexual sin of one form or another. And that will be important for us to consider because that will prepare our mind to rightly relate to what Paul is about to say in our third big idea, which is verses 5 and 7, when Paul exhorts us not to yield ourselves to any influence, any influence of those who would try and blunt our grasp of sexual sin's severity. And it's in that context that Paul will mention some very weighty, and heavy things that we will need to work through. But as we work through these big three ideas, we will will complete our, our interaction with the text. But we won't end the message quite yet. We're going to address a fourth point, and that is this proclamation that only the gospel can deliver sustained victory from sexual sin as we are increasingly convinced that Christ satisfies more Than the satisfaction promised by the lies of sexual sin. It's important that we bring the gospel to bear with what we hear and see the practical reality of the gospel's sustenance in our sanctification and in our battle in these areas. So, those are the four big ideas. So, let's begin. We'll we'll begin with this first idea put all forms of sexual sin, put off all forms of sexual sin and put on a heart of understanding, verses 3 through 4. Now there's a couple of subpoints here, and I'll summarize them for you, and I'll repeat these as we work through the text. The 1st subpoint is that you and I are called to a decisive intolerance towards all forms of sexual sin that lingers in our hearts. You and I are called to a decisive intolerance towards all forms of sexual sin, that lingers in our hearts. That's the first subpoint of this first big idea. And the second subpoint is that Paul calls us to put off those related sins that radiate from a heart of immorality. And then the third subpoint is that having put that off, he calls us to put on Thanksgiving. So those are the three subpoints that, that round out this big idea to put off all forms of sexual sin and put on a heart of understanding. So let's begin with that 1st subpoint. You and I are called to a decisive intolerance towards all forms of sexual sin that linger in our hearts. Paul writes in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now let's begin by noticing this word, but. This word indicates that we've caught up with Paul in mid-thought. What he's about to say is, has some logical connection to what he has just mentioned. And Paul's use of the conjunction but connects verse 3 to Paul's exhortation in verses 1 and 2, where he writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In verse 3, Paul calls out a family of related sins whose practice is in utter contradiction, utter contradiction to the holy conduct and gospel reality he just called us to in verses 1 and 2. Paul mentions three sins, though this isn't so much a list of three distinct sins, but rather three different aspects or facets of sexual sin in general. Now let's look at this. The first word he uses, translated sexual immorality, or some of your uh, Bibles might translate it immorality or fornication, is the Greek word pornaya. And that probably has a familiar ring to our English speaking ears. In its strictest definition, it refers to sexual activity outside of marriage. But the word is used throughout all of Scripture with, with a, a wider range of meaning. And it is used often to refer to a range of illicit sexual activity, including prostitution, adultery, and even incest. The second word that Paul mentions is translated as the word impurity, or in some of your versions, perhaps you see the word uncleanness. And this is the word akatharsia. Now, literally, this word means anything that is filthy or dirty. Interestingly, this word is used eleven times in the New Testament, and only once is it used in its literal context. And that happens to be when Christ is confronting the Pharisees and he talks to them about the the inside, the inside filth of the tombs. He uses this word Akatharsia. Ten of the eleven times this word appears in the New Testament, it's being used in its figurative sense, in which it's being used as a statement of moral corruption. Particularly in association with sexual sin. And finally, we come to this word covetousness, or this word pleonoxia. And this might be translated greed in the version you're reading. Now, again, in its literal sense, the word means greed, usually denoting a desire for material possessions. However, according to Mounce's complete expository of Old and New Testament words, as well as other sources, Scripture often associates this word with sexual immorality or sensuality, as is the case even in our current letter. If you go back to chapter 4, in verse 19, we see Paul write, he said, referring to the Gentiles, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the same word up there that we're reading down below. Pleonaxia. And so scripture often associates this word with immorality or sensuality, as we've seen in 4.19. If you look at Colossians 3.5, a parallel expression of our present passage, the word also appears there. And elsewhere in scripture, the word is closely associated with adultery, as it is in Mark 7.21 and 2 Peter 2.14. So clearly in our present context, Paul is using this word in particular to refer to a desire for illicit sexual behavior and so paul isn't iterating through a series of three distinct sins he's speaking to different facets of the same underlying thing that thing being sexual sin but there's more to this prohibition against sexual sin than the list of words that paul chose listen carefully to the way paul expresses this injunction listen he says that these things must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And when calling out impurity, he emphasizes all impurity. There's a certain intensity or a certain burden in Paul's voice. You know, we've seen Paul respond this way to sexual sin at least once before when Paul strongly rebuked the Corinthians for arrogantly boasting of an illicit sexual relationship between a man and his father's wife. Listen to the same sense of burden Paul wrote with in 1 Corinthians 5.1, where he writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Notice Paul's inference. How can something that is so strongly opposed to a life consumed with Christ be present among you. In our current passage, Paul has turned his attention to that sin, which he cited earlier as a signature of the Gentiles. I've already sort of alluded to that when we read 419. Listen again. Listen to how Paul introduced his current train of thought way back in chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. Listen to Paul. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, With a tone similar to Paul's rebuke in 1 Corinthians, Paul is drawing an undeniable contrast between the mind and actions of the saints and the mind and actions of unbelievers. Let there be no doubt about it. Paul's burden in this morning's text, and thus the Lord's word for you and I, is that we obliterate every last shadow of sexual sin in our life and in the life of the church. This no-compromise call to put away immorality is not limited to our present passage. Similar exhortations abound throughout all of Scripture. Consider, for example, Romans 13, verses 13 through 14, and listen to the intensity of Paul's tone here. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's that no compromise intensity. Or we read in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13 and later 19 and 20, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then we read in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and later verses 5 through 7. For this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So, summarizing this first subpoint, you and I are called to a decisive intolerance towards all forms of sexual immorality that may linger in our hearts. Which brings us to our second subpoint. He calls us to put off those related sins that radiate from a heart of immorality. Paul writes in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul goes on to exhort his listeners to abandon a collection of sinful behaviors related to immorality. Now I want to bring your attention for the moment to Matthew 12, verses 34 through 35, where our Lord explained. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks a good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil we can think of filthiness foolish talk and crude joking as immorality's supporting cast the flesh is crafty and has learned how to mask the patent vileness of sexual sin and like a mob boss who sends out his henchmen to do his day-to-day work, these sins may betray the presence of an abiding holdout of immorality within your heart and mine. Tolerating these behaviors only serves to blunt our own spiritual sensitivities to the severity of immorality's offense before the throne of God's holiness. You know, as I've immersed myself as I've been immersed in our text throughout the past week, the Lord struck me with a need to fearfully examine myself, especially in the choices I make in this area of entertainment. And I've been wondering whether my standards are too low. We live in a culture steeped in immorality and sensuality. And therefore, much of our entertainment is corrupted by filthiness, by foolish talk and crude joking. And so much so... I wonder if I've numbed myself to its offense or I'm too quick to rationalize it away or content simply to look past the offensive parts. Now, I don't want to make any specific call-outs about our consumption of popular culture, but I do want to suggest that a careful examination of our standards and our convictions may be a worthy focus of prayer in light of today's encounter with God's Word. Now, before moving on, I want to acknowledge a critical aspect of Paul's exhortation in this verse. He calls us not only to put off those related sins that radiate from a heart of immorality, that's our second subpoint, but he calls us to put on a spirit of thanksgiving, our third subpoint. Now, in keeping with the putting off and the putting on mechanism that Paul addressed in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul doesn't stop with the exhortation simply to put off immorality supporting cast of sin, but he calls us to put on a spirit of thanksgiving. We will have much to say about this shortly, but for now, I simply want you to log that observation. Put off this, put on that. So to summarize, in this first big idea, Paul has called us to put off all forms of sexual sin and to put on a heart of thanksgiving. And we've decomposed that into three sub-points. The first of which is this observation that you and I are called to a decisive intolerance towards all forms of sexual sin that may linger within our hearts. And then secondly, Paul calls us to put off those related sins that radiate from a heart of immorality. And thirdly, he calls us to put on a spirit of thanksgiving. That is our first big idea. And now we transition into our second big idea, and that is this. Every one of us is vulnerable to sexual sin of one form or another. And so we must earnestly pay attention to the gravity of what Paul is about to say in verses 5 through 7. You see, you might be tempted to think that because you've never had an extramarital affair or because you're not struggling with your sexual orientation, that you're outside the reach of this morning's passage. Or you might be inclined to see this particular collection of sins as attributable to those on the outside, satisfied that immorality and impurity aren't the primary components of your besetting package. And while an explicit struggle with immorality and impurity might not be the bold notes of your besetting package, the fervor and the intensity of Paul's argument doesn't grant us the liberty to see ourselves as those outside the circle of Paul's concern. We're about to arrive at a point in Paul's reasoning where he is burdened for his listeners in a particular way, in a particular weighty way. And to faithfully hear what God's word would speak to us this morning, we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul exhibiting such intensity on this subject? And to answer that question, And before we jump into verses 5 through 7, I'd like to briefly step out of our immediate text and see how Paul and the rest of Scripture emphasize the degree to which sexual sin, in one form or another, is among those sins that live at the core of our depraved nature. And this will help orient our thinking to rightly embrace the gravity which the Apostle is about to speak in the coming verses. So let's begin by looking at the immediate context. I want to make a couple of observations about how Paul addresses this topic of immorality. And I want to draw your attention first to the flow of Paul's thought and the intensity of his tone, some of which I've already alluded to. First, consider the flow of his thought. While Paul's discussion of immorality certainly flows from the put-off and put-on context of chapter 4, without a doubt, there's also a sense in which Paul's words in verses 3 through 7 stand apart from the exhortations he presented earlier in verses 25 through 31 of chapter 4. Our current passage isn't an immediate continuation of Paul's earlier exhortation. Related, yes, but not an immediate continuation. They're preceded by Paul's positive exhortations and his attention to the gospel in verses 30, in verse four thirty two and in five one through two, so not only does Paul's topic of immorality stand somewhat apart from his prior litany, he speaks about this particular family of sin in far greater extent than any one of the sins prior. In fact, sexual sin remains at the heart of Paul's discussion on darkness through at least verse fourteen of chapter five. So Paul has punctuated the gravity of his concern by setting these words apart and by devoting a lengthier treatment to this topic. But there's also this intensity and fervor with which he speaks. Listen to these phrases. Listen. He says, must not even be named among you. And then he says, for you may be sure of this. And Paul uses universal language like everyone in verse 5. And he calls out deceivers who use empty words in verse 6. And while the wrath of God is certainly opposed to all sin, including the sins Paul exhorted us to abandon in verses 25 and 31 of chapter 4, it's not until this topic of sexual sin that Paul explicitly calls out the wrath of God. So the point I'm trying to make is simply this, that there's something unique about Paul's treatment of immorality and how it fits within his larger flow of thought. Having said that, I don't say that in any way, in any way to dampen our attention or lessen the significance to what Paul just said in chapter 4. Without doubt, we will spend a lifetime wrestling with the application of those truths to our lives. I simply want to observe that, having observed that, there is something unique. There is a concentrated way, there's a particular intensity, there's a particular uniqueness to the way Paul has come into this topic and emphasizes this topic of sexual sin. And that becomes even a little bit more clear when we pull the camera back and we look at a slightly larger context of Paul's letter at large. Listen to what appears to be a sort of undercurrent of sexual sin That seems to flow throughout Paul's letter. Go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, where Paul summarizes the natural man's bondage to sin. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Lived how? in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then we move on to Ephesians 4, verses 18 through 19, where Paul is speaking to the Gentiles' condition, referring to the unsaved. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then finally we land in our current passage, Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints from passions of the flesh and desires of the body to sensuality and impurity, and finally an explicit reference to sexual immorality, Paul repeatedly draws attention back to this signature condition of human depravity. And each time he calls out this topic, he seems to do so with increasing precision, moving from general to more specific references. And then... The significance of these observations in Paul's writing come to even clearer light when we consider Romans 1 and other passages of Scripture. In the second half of Romans 1, in response to man's settled hostility towards God, we see man's depravity working itself outward from his heart to his actions under the sovereign judgment of God. We read in Romans 1.18... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then, in the same chapter, we jump down to verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator. And if we keep on going in verses 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts. Can you see the degree to which sexual sin plays a central role in the progressive display of man's depraved condition. Listen again to these other New Testament passages we've mentioned, and the degree to which the the Gentile or unsaved condition is associated with sexual sin. So in all these passages, the New Testament writer is talking about the Gentiles as a reference to the unsaved. And I want you to notice the consistency with which somehow some way the unsaved condition is attached to or associated with this prominent sexual sin. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, through 5, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Or in 1 Peter 4, verses 2-3, through 3, live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality passions drunkenness orgies drinking parties and lawless idolatry or back to our own passage our own book Ephesians 4:18 through 19 once again Paul speaking of the gentile condition they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The implication of all these observations is simply this. Whether man or woman, young or old, apart from the redeeming work of the gospel, every one of us is inclined Toward sexual sin. Now, it's true that the way sexual sin presents itself from one person to another may vary. One person may silently simmer lust in their hearts. Another may find satisfaction in how their appearance appeals to the opposite sex. And yet another might openly pursue a homosexual lifestyle. In any case, in any case, Sexual sin is a visceral part of everyone's sin package. And so let me summarize our big ideas thus far. We began with our first big idea. We've looked at Paul's call in verses 3 through 4 to put off all forms of sexual sin and to put on a heart of thanksgiving. And we worked through three subpoints there. And then in the second big idea, we've looked more closely at Paul's flow of, flow of thought as well as the larger biblical context, and we've come to see that every one of us, every one of us is vulnerable to sexual sin of one form or another. And perhaps another way to summarize the reason why Paul and the rest of Scripture dedicate such fervor and intensity to this topic is because perhaps all too often we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Acknowledging sexual sin only when we see it in its extremes, ignoring that visceral component within our fallen nature that appeals to that. With this larger biblical perspective in mind, we can now turn our attention back to Paul's flow of reasoning in chapter 5, understanding why Paul addresses sexual sin with such fervor and to the extent he does. And that brings us to our third big idea, Don't yield yourself to the influence of those who would try and blunt the severity of sexual sin. Do not yield yourselves to the influence of those who would try and blunt the severity of sexual sin. And it's here where Paul confronts us with two very weighty propositional statements and an exhortation. What do I mean by a propositional statement? Something that is simply asserted to be true. He's going to make two very weighty statements. The first he's going to make is this. Those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are not saved. And the second he will make is those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are the objects of God's wrath. And he says all that simply to say this, to command us to part company with those who would try to relax our conviction of these first two points. That is Paul's big idea in verses, three, in verses 5 through 7. So let's look at this. Those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are not saved. For you may be sure of this, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That was verse 5. Now, the first thing to notice is that Paul broadens his indictment of sexual sin, adding idolatry to his original list of three descriptors. Above and beyond the gravity of sexual sin's wickedness, as significant as that is, Paul indicates, that the sexual sinner's appetite is so strong that it is, in fact, accurate to describe them as worshipping their, their appetite for immorality and thus the indictment of an idolater. There's a sense here as if Paul were saying everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous or, if you prefer, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ But the main thing I'd like you to notice is Paul's use of the word inheritance. This is key. In chapter 1, Paul expresses our salvation in the context of our future inheritance. He does so in order to shift our anticipation and hope from this world to the certainty of our heavenly citizenship. He's encouraging his listeners through the already but not yet motif common across scripture. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through the front half of 14. Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The inheritance Paul celebrates proceeds from the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which proceeds From saving belief in Christ. No saving faith, no inheritance. When Paul describes someone as having no part in the inheritance of Christ and God, he means that they are not saved. And that brings us to our second subpoint those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are the objects of God's wrath. Obviously, this means the same thing as the first but it's fleshed out in slightly different language in verse 6 paul punctuates his point his point even more sharply when he adds let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience now the sense of this statement obviously is centered in an understanding of what the phrase these things refer to these things refers to the indictments Paul just called out in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and idolatry. All of these being different facets of the same underlying sin. And this is made even more clear when we consider the parallel expression of Paul's thought in Colossians 3 verses 5 through 6 where the apostle writes, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Sound familiar so far? On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, writes the apostle in Colossians 3. six. Also, Paul's phrase, sons of disobedience, should ring familiar in your ear. It's the same phrase he used to describe spiritual deadness back in chapter 2 when he described the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul's reference to these things at the beginning of verse 6 and his reference to the sons of disobedience at the end clearly, clearly identify the object of God's wrath in Paul's current thought as the unrepentant sexual sinner. And so, there's no doubt, let there be no doubt about it. Paul's meaning at this point in the text is as clear as it is heavy. Those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are not saved. Those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are the objects of God's wrath. And that brings us to our 3rd subpoint which is effectively a restatement of our third big idea. We are commanded to part company with those who would try and relax our convictions of these first two points, these first two propositional statements. Paul's language of condemnation is heavy. But as heavy as that is, Paul's condemnation of the unrepentant, Paul's condemnation of the unrepentant is not Paul's ultimate burden in this text. Okay, I want to make sure you understand that as heavy as Paul's condemnation is, that is not that is not the ultimate burden of the apostle in this text. Remember the context of this entire letter. Paul is writing to believers. He is writing to the church. He is writing to saints. Turn with me, if you will, to the fifth chapter of Hebrews, because here I believe we find a key to understanding Paul's response to the Ephesian church. Hebrews chapter 5. And when you get there, jump ahead to the end of verse 14. Where Paul writes, he says, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There you have it. There you have it. Paul is addressing the Ephesians church as those who have not yet fully trained their powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. Because of the influence with which sexual sin abounded in the Ephesian culture, because sexual sin in one form or another is both a deceitful and brutal taskmaster of those in bondage to darkness, Because the thought patterns and appeal of sexual sin can linger as struggles in the minds of the saints, Paul wants the church to fight this sin with a fervor and an intensity equal to this sin's danger and severity. And this is what brings us to Paul's burden in verse 6. Paul calls you and I to remove from our influence those who would try and persuade us that sexual immorality and all its in all its attendant forms is not sin, and thus try and persuade us to abandon or at least relax our pursuit of sexual holiness. So let's go back to the text. Having just declared that the unrepentant sexual sinner is not saved, Paul continues in verses six through seven. He says, "Let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Now, let's be crystal clear on one thing. Paul is not calling us to a self-righteous, to to self-righteously quarantine ourselves from the lost and thereby live with a haughty contempt for outsiders. No. Paul is calling us to live in recognition of this old man that we pack around. And live with an informed understanding of our own weakness and vulnerabilities, and thus, and thus, make wise decisions that ultimately build up and edify the church. Paul's admonishment in verse 6 is virtually identical, virtually identical to Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 11, and Colossians 2 8. Let me, let me try to show you this. In 1 Corinthians, Chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Listen to the apostle. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then flip over to Colossians 2.8, where Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, these two thoughts come together in Paul's exhortation in verses 6-7. through 7. Don't welcome influences into your life that strive against the Spirit's work of sharpening your discernment to distinguish between sexual immorality and purity. And so to summarize our big our three out of four big ideas, we first acknowledge our first big idea put all forms of sexual sin, put off all forms of sexual sin and put on a heart of thanksgiving. And we developed 3 subpoints underneath that. We said that you and I are called to a decisive intolerance towards all forms of sexual sin that lingers in our hearts. And secondly, the Apostle called us to put off those related sins that radiate from a heart of immorality. And thirdly, he called us to put on a spirit of thanksgiving. All of that was our first big point. And then secondly, our second big point, we made the observation through looking at Paul's flow of, flow of thought and the larger biblical picture, we concluded that man or woman, young or old, every one of us is vulnerable to sexual sin of one form or another. That was our second big idea. And then in our third big idea, we said, do not yield yourself to the influence of those who try and blunt the severity of sexual sin. Verses five through seven. And we made three points underneath that big idea. We recognize Paul's Two big, weighty propositional statements. Those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are not saved. And similarly, those who live with a settled, unrepentant accommodation to sexual sin are the objects of God's wrath. And with those two points in mind, we said that we noted that we are commanded to part company with those who would try to relax our conviction of these first two points. And that dear brothers and sisters, is the unpacking of our text this afternoon. We've finished unpacking the burden of the text, but we don't want to end the message quite yet because we want to answer this question. How does the gospel come to bear on everything we've just said? So yes, we've sort of turned, we've turned to our final approach. The runway is out there, the gear's down, the flaps are down. And so as you're putting your seat backs up and your trays in an upright position, let's spend a little bit of time talking about how the gospel comes to bear in everything we've just said, and then we will land. If the Spirit of God has gripped your heart with a deep conviction of sin through your confrontation with God's Word this, this afternoon, then I want you to know, I want you to know that the burden you are experiencing is an expression of God's love and His mercy for you. The Lord wants you to know this moment, his love for you. Jesus Christ took upon himself the ownership of your sin. That sin weighing upon you this very moment, Jesus Christ came to own on your behalf, submitting himself in your place to the fury of God's wrath against your sin so that you could experience new life in God. Christ died, to settle your debt to God's justice, not only for each and every specific sin of your past and present, but even those sins you'll commit in the future as you learn to yield imperfectly to God's spirit as he both renews and renovates your habits of thought and deed. And this is exactly what Paul meant when he wrote in Colossians 2 verses 13 through 14. He said, God made you... God made you alive together with him, that is, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, if you feel the weight of the Lord's finger upon your soul, repent and believe in the gospel as your deliverance from sin's bondage and your lasting reconciliation with God. Listen, listen to the invitation of a mighty king who bids repentant sinners to come. When Christ proclaimed in Matthew 11:28 and 29, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me." For I am gentle and and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now if, on the other hand, you come here this morning as one who has tasted this forgiveness but whose heart is discouraged by defeat after defeat in this area of your sanctification, I want you to know that I have tasted your grief. And I want to share with you briefly a perspective that has ministered richly to me in similar situations of discouragement and even despair. You know, one of the keys to making war against sin's influence over our lives is coming to that point where we truly believe, we truly believe that Christ satisfies more than the satisfaction promised by the lies of sin. And that's true of all sin, but that is particularly true of sexual sin. We will enjoy greater and greater victory over sexual sin to the degree that we come that we come to be increasingly convinced that through this profound relationship we have with Christ, His Spirit pours into us a certain vitality and life that is of far greater satisfaction than the satisfaction promised by the lies of our flesh. I'm not talking about some some sort of abstract cold religious ideology i'm talking about that which the saints who have sojourned before us have so mightily bore testimony to listen to some of these testimonies as if hearing them for the first time listen to paul in philippians 3 verses 7 through 8 when he cries out but whatever gain i had i counted as lost for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as lost Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And then listen to the description of Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, where we hear by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter choosing instead, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And by the way, that reminds us that when we come to believe that our satisfaction in Christ is greater than the the satisfaction promised by the lies of sin, maybe, just maybe, there'll be those times where that's a faith proposition. Because everything bearing down upon us at the moment leads us to disbelieve that with all of our, our senses. And we just can't fathom at that moment how satisfaction in Christ can exceed what's being promised over here. And like Moses, we have to take it on faith. And we have to say, I may not feel it now. I may not functionally believe it now. But by God's grace, let me look forward to that day when I will nod my head and say, yes, it was true. And so sometimes our satisfaction in Christ must be taken upon faith, just as we see Moses did here. Or again, listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 15 where he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might not, might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and, was raised. and how could I not include Peter's testimony in 1 Peter 1, 1.8 where Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You and I desperately, desperately need to live in the epicenter of these truths. And in so doing, see sin lose its appeal. So how does this happen? How do we come to crave Christ so much that we see the temptations of sexual sin as the lies they are, and sin starves? Well, our text already pointed us to the way. Remember what Paul exhorted in Ephesians five four. He said, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Remember I said we'd get back to that? Let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Thanksgiving for who Christ is and what He has done in light of who we are. Here is where the ongoing, continuous preoccupation with the Gospel through our immersion in the Word, through prayer And fellowship with the saints proves itself to be of supreme practicality. You see, as the Spirit works through these means of sanctifying grace, our minds are steadily transformed to think deeply and rightly about the profound wonder and awe of a God who would slay His own Son in order to deal justly with our sin, rescuing us from His fury and placing us into a relationship of everlasting reconciliation with Himself. And why would He do this? Why would He do that? Our mighty God did so, writes Paul in our same letter, Ephesians two seven, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His graces, of His riches, of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. I've I butchered that. I'm sorry. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he do all this? So that he would take the enemy and give the enemy a new heart and bring him into reconciliation with himself for no other reason than to display his grace and the riches of his kindness upon the unlovable. How unbelievable and immeasurable and profound and inexplicable is that? How can it be like the psalmist cried out in Psalm 8:4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who is this God who loved the unlovable? An ever-growing discovery of the gospel's depth and breadth sets as the object of our affections the unquenchable desire to know and experience a deepening intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ who liberated us from sin's cruel bondage. In John 4.14, our Lord proclaimed, He says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. And then in John 6, we hear our Lord proclaim, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then again we hear our Lord in John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 10, we hear our Lord declare himself to be the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one no one will snatch them out of my hand. As we strive to know Christ, Christ's disclosure of Himself becomes something more than just letters on a page. As these words stir something within our soul of far greater vividness and radiance, we gaze at the cross, and though our sin be weighty, though our sin be weighty, we are reminded that the height of, Of the cross's triumph. The height of the cross's triumph is higher than the depth of sin's sinfulness. And we worship our Savior King. And as our minds are renewed, as our affections are reoriented, our will soon follows. And though there continues to be within us a battle between our former self and our new self, sins appeal steadily. Fades as we come to taste of our joy in Christ, only to be made yet more hungry. And so we consider the gospel, pondering all its facets and depth. And as we do so, we grow in gratitude for the gospel. And as our gratitude grows, our affections for Christ also grow. And as our affections for Christ grow, we become increasingly persuaded That our satisfaction in Christ is something of far greater worth and pleasure than the satisfaction promised by the lies of sexual sin. Christ becomes gloriously large and sin's tantalizing charms grow dull. And so plead with God that through his word he would grant you and me that which Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, in Ephesians 3:16 through 19 and with these and with these words with the recovery of these words we'll close our message. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3:16 through 19 that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.